In October and November, we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's, it's, a, it's a profound book. It's a powerful book. It's a challenging book. Um, and as we go through it, you know, in, in some ways, there's no better book uh, to go to if you are on a spiritual quest. You know, if you're seeking, if you're wrestling, if you're questioning, you know, it's, it's one of the only places in the Bible where the Bible, um, the author kind of takes the posture of a skeptic. Or all throughout the book, he'll take the posture of a materialist where he says, all right, you, you believe that life under the sun is all there is. So all that there is is just this flesh, this bones, uh, this material world. All right, are you willing to face that reality in all of its challenges? So he, he takes on the challenge. Are you really ready to live with all that that will mean? But it's also a gift to us because it's a gift that gives us the gift of reality. It's a gift that helps burst our uh, bubbles of pretension and forces us to face reality. And so in October and November, we're, go we're doing an overview of Ecclesiastes. And maybe one of the best ways to think about it is almost like um, it's one of the original like two-day seminars on like how to find your destiny or becoming, uh, you know, awaken the giant within or something like that, where it's a two-day seminar where you're wrestling with what is the meaning of life? What's the meaning of life? And like day one of the seminar is from chapter one through verse uh, chapter six. And then in, in chapter six and verse 10, it kind of summarizes all of day one. And day one, in essence, chapters one through six is all about what are we striving after? What's our energy? The word is toil or work, but don't think work just like my nine to five occupation. It's work like everything that requires energy from me, everything I'm striving after. And uh, that's the theme of day one. And then in chapter six, starting verse 10, there's a turn. So we're kind of moving into day two. And day two is really all about how can you know? How can you know? It's um, how can you know what's good? Look at chapter six, verse 12. And this sets up the theme question for the whole second half or the whole day two of our what's the meaning of life seminar. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of this vain life. Now, some, remember, vain doesn't always mean like, oh, you're so vain or you're so pompous. You think this song is probably about you. It's not, sometimes it just means breath, fleeting here today, gone tomorrow. So who knows what is, if life is transitory, if it's here today, gone tomorrow, if it just goes by so quickly, who can actually know what's the good, the good thing to do? Who can know what we should be doing in this life under the sun? And so as you can kind of get a sense and maybe appreciate some of the, just the literary beauty of Ecclesiastes, you know, verses or chapters one through six, 10 is kind of the pivot. And then 12 launches us into the new section. But in, in chapters 1 through 6 to verse 10, there's exactly 111 verses. And then from 12 on uh, 6, 12 to chapter 12, there's 111 verses. And then not only that, in the first half, like the first day of the seminar, there's exactly 1,491 words. And guess how many words are in the second half? 1,491. 
and 91. And so this is a beautiful poetic uh, work of art that's put together to help us wrestle with what does it mean to live well? How can we know the second section? How can we know what the good life is? What should be the things that we pursue? So that's what we're going to move into. And this first poem that sets up the second half begins in chapter 7. And what we see here is kind of this dramatic change in pace because for the first six chapters, he wants to draw you into his own personal angst. I have seen, I set my heart. This was, uh, he, he's drawing you into his own story. And then in the second half, it becomes a lot more kind of didactic, a lot more teaching, a lot more, a lot less reflecting and arguing and more direct teaching. And this first section sets up seven, um, it's better. These things are better. If you're going to walk through this life and live well, you have to learn uh, to walk a better path. So the way we're going to frame this is we're going to look at uh, life under the sun, S-U-N, and then life under the sun, S-O-N. And this first section is, all right, if, you, if we all live life under the sun, there's actually a better way to live. There's certain things that is, your, your life is just going to be better if you do them. But he gives us these seven things, and they're somewhat shocking so we're going to kind of walk through it, two big headings, heading one, life under the sun, heading two, life under the sun. But let's look first at this first heading of life under the sun. So if kind of under the sun, as we live this life, uh, what he's going to lay out for us is a path to be wise. So it's better to be wise than to be foolish. And so if we're going to be wise, the first thing in seven, one through four is you must keep your death in mind. Must keep your death in mind. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. So this first section, just one through four, is teaching, if you're going to be wise, you must keep your death in mind. Now look at verse one. It starts out with something, in essence, we would assume a good name is better than precious ointment. In one sense, everyone would agree, especially coming out of a shame and honor culture that the Bible is written in, like the most important thing is the honor of your name. So nobody would really dispute this. But then after this, there's a surprising turn. It's kind of like in the Beatitudes where you expect, oh, blessed, blessed are who? Blessed are those who celebrate and are rich and they feast. And Jesus said, uh-uh, blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are mourn. It's the same type turn here. You know, one thing we don't quite get in, you know, English is a, is a, a really crazy language. I feel so sorry for you who have to come in and then learn it because well, we know it just doesn't make sense. Like every toddler knows that it should be good, gooder, goodest. But for some reason, maybe if you're in a grammar lover, you can tell us why. But for some reason, it's good, better, best. And so sometimes in the English, we kind of miss the key word that's going through the whole thing is, is good. What's good? And you can even see it in the first. So actually, my southern friends can get a better sense of this phrase. It, it, a good name is gooder than good ointment. And so you're trying to ask the question, all right, what is not just good, but what's, what's gooder? How do you choose the gooder? And then he's going to give us three things that are better that should surprise us. Look in verse 1. It's surprising where he says, the day of death. 
is better than your day of birth? How can that be? Going to a funeral in verse 2 is better than going to a festival? How can that be? It's better to be sorrowful? Sorrow is better than laughter? How can that be? And so one of the things I think he's doing is if you're going to be wise, you need to learn to um, heed these things. So one of the things the Bible says is that death, death is the last enemy, the last enemy to be defeated. But it can also not, it's not just an enemy, it can be an evangelist. It can be a preacher where we can look at it and we can learn certain lessons. See, one of the things that all of these things, um, the house of mourning, sorrow, uh, the funeral, one of the things they'll force you is they'll force you to face what really matters in life. You know, that contrast, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Isn't that, that's hard for us to believe. Like you med students, when you're doing your rotation, um, do you find more joy at the maternity ward than you do in the ICU? I would imagine in general, it's a happier place. But he's saying for the wise, there actually can be more joy here. How? You know, one of the beautiful things about my job is I get to announce when new babies are born. So we have, we have Luke Andrew Bomar. Is he in the house? He's, he's, he's in the house in the very back. And then just Friday night, uh, if you know Mackenzie and uh, Stephanie Terrell, their new baby boy was born Friday night. And his prayer, everyone's doing well. And uh, his prayer was that they can agree on a name. So <laughs> difficult challenges lay ahead. And so when we announce, and sorry, I can't remember these for Luke, so you could ask Kate to get the details, but you know, when we announce, like we announce burrs and what, what do we announce? We announce like the statistics, you know, they're 24 inches and six pounds, 12 ounces, and they have, you know, her mother's eyes and they have the father's nose. And these are the things we announce and the birth is filled with anticipation and hope. But really all we know about them is how long they are. And I've probably done maybe 35, 40 funerals, and I was just reading back through some of my funeral homilies yesterday. And you know what's one thing I have not yet have ever mentioned in a funeral homily? (laughs) The statistics. I never said, you know, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to celebrate and remember the life of Miss Thea Cotney. She was 5'3", 122 pounds. She had her mother's eyes and her grandfather's nose. You, you don't say those things there. Because at the day of death, you know, at the day of birth, we have all we have is anticipation. At the day of death, all we have is reality. Just what was real. This actually is who she was. This is what she loved. This is what she did. This is who she survived by. You can actually evaluate how well they lived and how fully they loved. And so what, what the writer here is saying, if you want to be wise, go to that day. Remember that day. And David Brooks uh, has a fabulous book that he wrote a couple of years ago on uh, the road to character. He talks about in our world, we have two sets of virtues. We have our resume virtues, like the things you really push that'll get you a job. Then we have what he called the eulogy virtues, the things that people will say about you at your funeral. He says, those are the things that make life uh, that cause you to live well. And then there's this kind of shocking thing about sorrow. Sorrow is better than laughter. You wonder, how could that be? And I think one of the things he's getting at, Martin Lloyd-Jones said in the 1950s that superficiality is the curse of our age. I wonder what he would say now. I don't think we've gotten much better. 
And one of the things that these things, the, way, the reason why they can make you wise is that they are the tools that can be used to make you deep. They can give you depth. And you know, if you think about it, have you ever met someone who in essence had learned these lessons? There was a depth to them. They had actually, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain way you can only fully be alive if you've actually grasped with your mortality. And you meet people who are just fully engaged with their world and their family and the goodness of creation. And it's because they know that it's all a gift. It's all on loan. It's a gift. And one day, God will call time. But when he does, we can be ready to go. So the great challenge of this first section is, will you let death teach you? Will you embrace your limitations? Will you let it reshape your goals or your attitudes or the things you long for? or work for, or hope for, or pray for. But the reality is death can only teach us if it doesn't scare us. As long as it scares us, it can't teach us. As long as it doesn't lord itself over us, if it doesn't own you. And so the only way it can really teach you is you have to find freedom from that. So the biggest question we can answer this morning is where can that freedom be found? So we'll come back to that in a minute, but let's move through the rest of the story. Because if you're going to be wise, you not only have to remember your end, you actually have to walk a path. And from verse 5 all the way to 14, he's going to help give you the steps that you need to take down the path to become wise. And, you know, there's two pathways in life. as like David brought out last week. You know, wisdom is a path. It's not a poof of magic. And the primary metaphor that the Bible uses for how to live well and wisely is it's a path. And you're walking. And every step you take is taking you down this path. And so notice, start, let's look and start in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God who, made, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So he's going to kind of lay a path. And what I want you to notice, look at verse 5. Notice it's the things you hear. And then moving in 7, 8, 9, it's your, do you see your heart? In verse 7, the bribe corrupts the heart. And then spirit, spirit, spirit. Patient in spirit, proud in spirit, don't be quick to anger in your spirit. Then anger lodges in the heart. So you have what you hear, heart, spirit, 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 heart, and then what you say in verse 10. So it's almost like this is the process by which you're being internally formed. The words that you're heeding and hearing, then it comes and it shapes both your heart and your spirit, and then it comes back out in the words you say. So really, these six things that you can see here, um, one after another, these are probably the six most important things that are going to determine who you're going to be. 
and how you're going to live. It's the words you hear. It's the words you say. It's your ability to deal with anger, patience, impatience. All of these things determine how you live. Look at the first one, the voices you hear in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And this is vanity. So what he's saying is better. The only way you'll ever grow, the only way you'll ever live well, the only way you can grow is if you have wise, loving criticism that you hear. But he says it's better for you to hear the rebuke of the wise than the songs of fools. The problem is um, we don't like to hear words of rebuke. We don't like to hear words of criticism. But if you think about it, you'll never grow in any area without them. But what do we naturally prefer? The songs of fools. Now think about this for a second. What is he referring to here? What are the songs of fools? You know, I think one of the things that marks our age, we not only live in a superficial age, we live in an age of just silly songs. And it would be so easy just to throw rocks at our current pop silliness. But, you know, every age has its silly songs that people just kind of sing at karaoke places and don't really think much about. Like one example that I like to illustrate this with is, you know, some songs really have meaning and depth and they kind of tap into kind of who we are. And uh, you can look at like the every year, you know, every year at Christmas, they, you know, everybody has these lists like the Billboard top 500 songs of, of in the history of the earth and then the top 20 most, you know, greatest moments of the last decade, blah, blah, blah. And in all of the, you know, the Billboard, the VH1 top 100 songs ever, you know, one of the songs that's always up there near the top is the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction. And so you can sing it in your head if you know it. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. And uh, what's fascinating, you know, it's a song that really embodies the quest of a whole generation. But what's interesting is that song actually, if it's claimed to be one of the greatest rock songs of all time, and it actually is one of the few on the list that made it to number one on the charts. But do you know how long it was actually number one on the charts? It was only at number one on the charts for three weeks. It hit in uh, July 10th, and oh, I didn't write down the year. I can get back to you on the year. And then on August 7th, it was displaced. And do you know what song displaced satisfaction from the number one spot? The Billboard Top 100 or whatever. It was, that, it was another um, British band named Herman's Hermits. And you might remember their smash hit, I'm Henry VIII, I am. (laughs) Now, if that's not ringing a bell, I'll read you some of the lines. Here's some of the lines. I'm Henry VIII, I am. Henry VIII, I am, I am. I got married to the widow next door. She's been married seven times before. And every one was a Henry. And then the band shouts, Henry. So she would not have a Willie or a Sam. Sorry, Sam. We have a Sam. She would not have a Sam. I'm her eighth old man. I'm Henry. Henry the eighth I am. Second verse, same as the first. I, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we can't just make fun of kind of you, you our 60s, you know, flower power folks, because every single generation has these anthems that they sing, you know, people singing, girls just want to have fun, do the twist. Uh, what's love got to do with it? La Bamba. I mean, maybe it's cross-cultural. And uh, if your kids ever make fun of you about Herman's Hermits, you can just say, hey, look at Justin Bieber. 
Your generation's not any better. You could pull out Baby. I don't know if you've heard his smash hit, Baby. Here's the lyrics. Baby, 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 oh. Like, baby, 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 no. Like, baby, 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 oh. You've got it. And, you know, you can actually listen to these pop songs. And, you know, I know our healthcare professionals tell us things like smoking kill brain cells, but nobody's saying, listen to this kind of music kills brain cells. Every one of us has silly songs, and why do, we, why do they become hits? Why would we prefer to listen to those things? It says the wise would rather listen to wise rebuke than those songs. But I wonder, is that what he's talking about? Or maybe he's talking about a more sinister song of fools that can work its way into our heart. Because the parallel is wise rebuke versus song of fools. Maybe the song of fools is the song we sing every time we justify ourselves when we're receiving rebuke. So if we're going to be wise, we have to find a way to become teachable. We have to find a way to hear and heed the wisdom around us. So the question in every area of life is how can you receive wise Loving feedback. But notice the next thing. So that's the, the word you hear. Then it moves internally to heart, spirit, spirit, heart. And then ver- look at verse 7, the connection with your price. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So now he moves to how you deal with money. And oppression is one of the great questions that we actually had to skip over when we were moving to the first half. And that's something we'll have to cycle back to. But one of the things says you deal with, this is really... Um, a challenging little sentence because it's like, what is he talking about? You know, on the surface, he's talking about being your ability to be bought. And, you know, we even say that everyone has a price. And one of the burdens of Ecclesiastes is to argue, no, they don't. Or they shouldn't. And one of the, there's few things that can make fools out of us like money. But it's interesting, notice the connection between that and oppression. And so it's interesting, is the context someone who is fighting oppression and it's driven them to, to madness because they can't fix these problems that they so desperately are trying to solve. And so what they do is actually turn to fight wickedness with the tools of wickedness. Or is it someone who um, is just seeking the easy way out in a difficult situation? But either way, the question is, all right, what is your price? Can you be bought? What can capture your heart? And then look at verse 8, your perseverance. <laughs> Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And what he's saying, better is the end than the beginning. And you know, all of it, there's certain people who are just kind of naturally driven where they're kind of have catalytic personalities where they love to get things going and love to start. But here the question is, do you know that better is the end than the beginning? How do you persevere? How do you keep going? This is one of the great challenges, not just in like projects, but just in life. You know, are you more energetic and excited about your marriage the week before your wedding than you were last week about it? Were you more excited about bringing your child home from the hospital than you were about them coming home from school this last week? You know, there's certain projects at work that you were more excited about getting them off the ground than the keeping them, maintaining them, perseverance. How do we keep going. And then notice how he then, there's three things that he ties with spirit. It's a spirit of patience, spirit of pride, and spirit of anger. Notice the next thing, your patience. Better is the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. 
Why does he connect patience and pride? Isn't that interesting? You know, I used to think I was a patient person, actually. And then I had kids. And actually remember the moment where my lack of patience became crystal clear for all to see. It was in the parking lot of Chick-fil-A in Valdosta, Georgia. And our girls are 14 months apart. And I don't remember how, so they were probably, they were still at that stage where they can't get in the car themselves, they can't buckle themselves, can't do any normal functions themselves. And for some moment of insanity, I don't know what was happening in our life that forced me to have to take a road trip. So we're on a road trip from Orlando and I I had to go to Alabama and a trip that, and it was just me. So just me, two toddlers and a trip that should take eight hours. We were going on eight days and we had made it to the Chick-fil-A in Valdosta and somehow like I don't know why it took two and a half hours to eat two chicken nuggets and half a fruit cup and spill two different bottles of chocolate milk. And then we finally got through, finally got back into the car, finally started going. And every single one of you parents knows, you know what I heard from the chorus of the car seats behind me as, as we were still in the parking lot. One says, I'm hungry. And the other says, stop, I have to go potty. And then in my reaction in that moment taught me without any doubt, I am not a patient person. Just not very patient. And it's one of those beautiful moments where you're just kind of illusions of your delusions of who you are get destroyed. And one of the things that's so fascinating, because I wonder if Solomon would have been sitting there just smiling and laughing, and I, and I wonder at the moment if I said, I, you know, I need patience, I wonder if he would have said, well, you know, patience isn't really your problem. Your pro- you know, cheer up. Your problem's a lot worse than that. <laughs> your problem is your pride. Because patience isn't so much a thing we do, it's who we are. And this is, there's a spirit, look, a spirit of patience So the patient in spirit. So they have a spirit about them, a way they are. But the contrast is the proud in spirit. So he he might say, well, actually, things are a lot worse. The reason why you're so impatient is because you're so proud that you're not taking into consideration their needs and only thinking about yours. And you've been bulldozing through life your entire 36 years of obliviousness, thinking that your way has to be the right way and not concerned about those around you. And they just force you to actually think about the people around you. It's your pride, not your impatience. And what's interesting is you look at these things, I wonder how much impatience can fuel so many of these problems you see here. You know, going after the bribe, maybe it's impatience and want the quick fix. The anger is the quick temper. The nostalgia is being impatient with the present. You know, anything that's worthwhile just takes time, and we have to give it the patience it needs. But then notice he connects patience, arrogance, and then anger. It's so interesting how these things correlate. He would put the, I put this down as your pet peeves. Because notice what he says, don't be quick in your spirit, verse 9, to be angry. So what are the things that cause you to become angry quickly? Don't be quick to anger. It says it lodges in your heart. It's like a thorn that gets stuck in your hand, and every time you move, you can just feel it. And if you don't deal with it, if you don't get it out, even if it's just a small little thing, it can cause an affection and cause your life to be all problematic. And so it's worth asking, all right, not only why am I so, or what causes me to be impatient, what causes me to be offended? 
Why are we so easily offended? You know, I think one of the great tests of how deep the gospel has worked in your life is how easy, how easy it is to offend you. Are you easily offended? Is your temper on a hair trigger? Are you too touchy? You know, Solomon might smile to us and say, eh, actually, you have a problem with anger. Anger's not the deepest problem either. You wouldn't be so easily offended if you didn't have such a high opinion of yourself. So you see how pride fuels that as well. And then notice how in verse 10 it comes out in the words we say. And this is fascinating because it says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask that. He's saying, don't be nostalgic. Don't look back on past days and think they're better than these. I mean, we would almost think nostalgia is just a harmless thing. Why does he critique it? But maybe it's because nostalgia can be a substitute for action or for proper thought. You know, it'll overlook the evil that took place in another form and another time and probably plagued other people, and it'll ignore the opportunities that are right here before us. You're denying the reality that God is present with you. Now, it's interesting, you look at all six of those things, and they're just a way that we can escape reality. And Ecclesiastes is a gift, face reality. You know, extortion can be a way of escaping the reality of your responsibilities. Impatience, a way of escaping the reality of wishing things were different than they are. Anger, a way of escaping your inability to cope with things not being the way you want them to be. And nostalgia, escaping the reality of having to wrestle with the present and not looking to the future in faith. So one of the things he's going to say, if you're going to be wise, then you must do these things. This is a better way to live. Your life is going to go better for you if you keep in the consideration your end, if you live, uh, you control your anger, you live with patience, and you do these things. But we don't just want to be people who are wise. The gospel doesn't just offer you a good life. It offers you a transformed life, a redeemed life. And so we can look at these in the context, all of these things, and what does life under the sun, the S-O-N, look like? So wisdom can help us live a better way, but it's almost like Jesus would then beckon us from wisdom and say, here now, let me show you an even more excellent way. How can your day of death become gain for you? How can it be better? Because it's in the light of Christ trampling down of death by his death, that we now can see death dif differently. It can be a gain for us because it's no longer an exit into extinction, but it's our entrance into eternity. Or there's another song from Trip Lee, Christian rapper, death is just a doorway that takes me to my faithful lover. So if you're going to be transformed, you not just, so to be wise, you have to keep your death in mind, but if you're going to be transformed, you have to keep his death in mind. If you would really be transformed, look to his, not just yours. You know, if you want a good name, then by faith, you actually, through the power of his name, can have the best name possible. You can have his name placed on you. That's part of the glory and the beauty of baptism is his name then gets placed on you and you're brought into his family. So it doesn't matter what you've done to your name. It doesn't matter if you feel like you've ruined your reputation beyond repair. You can have another name placed on you. And now you actually can be free from the, the weight of having to keep up your own name because it's too big of a burden and it's not necessary because you have his his good name is better than any precious ointment because it's the one that is mighty to save. 
and it's the one that has the power to heal. So if you'll find life, look to his death, look to the cross. The reason why sorrow can be better is because that he was the ultimate man of sorrows and he bore our sorrows so we can have his joy. He bore our pain so we can have his healing and life. So it can be better. And if you're going to be transformed, you not only have to walk the path of wisdom, you have to get to know the person of wisdom. See, the Old Testament lays before us a path to walk, to be wise, but the New Testament gives us a picture of the person. And so there's a person you can know. True wisdom is not just a path, it's a person. And then now in that person, when you know that person, all of those things that we see can be transformed. You now can hear the rebuke of the wise and not become defensive because you're secure. You're safe and secure and you don't have to justify yourself anymore so you can receive it because you know that the critique won't kill you. And then you don't have to worry about selling your soul to the highest bidder because your soul has already been bought. And what price? That's why Paul says, do you not know? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And the price was his precious blood. That's what he paid. So you don't have to worry about selling yourself cheap because it's already been purchased. And it was purchased as infinite cost to the son of God. And you think about your perseverance. How can you have the, the strength to just keep going? You can look to him and say, it's his responsibility to bring me to the end. He who has begun a good work in you, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. And he's in no hurry to bring about your transformation. And then you can look at him and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had a work to do that he came to do the father's work and he finished and so we looked across to the cross. We looked to the one who had work to do and did it all the way to the end. And he was willing to bear the ultimate burden for us so that we can bear all others, all other burdens for others. And then you think about patience. Where does the power come to have a, not just acts of patience, but the spirit of patience? And the Holy Spirit puts that fruit in us, but it comes in us when we become convinced and know that there is no, there's no way I can ever be more patient with my children than God has already been with me. There's no one you will ever be more patient with than what the patience Christ has already shown you. You'll never be more patient with your boss, your employees, your spouse, your neighbors, your friends, anyone around you than Christ has already been with you. And it's his patience for us that fuels our patience to others. And then it can make us slow to anger, quick to compassion. And one of the reasons we don't become nostalgic and say the past days were better than these is because as Christians, our hope is that our best days are always in front of us. Always. Our best days are going to be when we stand before him full and complete and he wipes away every tear from every eye and he has made all things new. What it means to have hope and the Christian hope is that your best days are always ahead of you. So now it actually doesn't matter what your boss thinks of you or it actually doesn't matter if you can't fit into your high school jeans it actually doesn't matter if the company you poured your life into is downsizing and or going bankrupt because our best days are always ahead of us. And the way we actually experience not just wisdom but transformation is we don't just walk a path, we come to the person. 
So every, every week here at Trinity, we come to the Lord's table, and it's our way of symbolically, we come to the person. We come to his table, and we feast. But have you come to the person? Have you met the person? Do you know him? Come to him now. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we confess to you, <coughs> we confess to you that we are, we are fractured people. We are broken people. We confess to you that we know ourselves to too quickly become angry, to be too touchy, too sensitive, too impatient. And so we confess these things to you and we ask that you would heal us. We ask you that you would put into us by the power of your gospel and by the power of your Holy Spirit a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of patience, a spirit of joy. We ask that you would do all of these things for us. And Lord, we also pray and we give you thanks. We ask that you help us to give thanks, uh, to remember our end to know that life is short, life is a gift. Help it to shape the way we go about our daily business. But we also give you thanks for the day of life beginning. And so we praise you for Andrew and Kate and their baby boy. We pray your blessings on Luke's life. We pray that he would grow to be strong. He would grow to be healthy. He would grow to be holy, that he would know all of these things and to be wise and to walk in your ways all of his days. And we thank you for Mackenzie and Stephanie's baby boy. We thank you and pray for his three older sisters, that they would love him well. And we pray that, you would, that he also would be, um, he would grow to be strong and healthy and happy and holy and that he would walk your, in your ways all of his days, learning from your wisdom, following your son, serving those around him. We also pray and thank you as tomorrow uh, our country and all around the world will remember those who paid the ultimate sacrifice so we can live in a land of freedom. We pray and lift up now. I want to pray for our armed forces. Pray they commend to you your gracious, into your gracious care all the keeping of all of the men and women in the armed forces at home and abroad. Pray that you would defend them day by day by your heavenly grace. Pray that you would strengthen them in whatever trial or temptation they would find themselves in and give them the courage to face the perils that are all around them. Help us to be a generous and joyful and a thankful people. And Lord, we thank you above all for the greatest gift that we've ever received. You've given us tremendous gifts, the gifts of new life, gifts of food and water, shelter, freedom, peace. But the greatest gift you've ever given is you did not spare your own son, but you gave him up for us all. And so how will you with him not freely give us all things? So as we come to your table, we ask that you would uh, remind us of that incredible gift and help tune our hearts to be thankful in all things. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.